we're, we're delighted to be joined by a very special guest, uh, Scarlet's Chair, Simon Muderak. Simon, uh, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. You know, all the better for a win on the weekend. Uh, yeah, thanks for choosing time into this podcast to coincide with um, a win, which has been a rare thing for us this season. Well, I mean, it's the perfect place to start, isn't it? A, uh, a five-try win at the Arms Park. Doesn't get much better than that, does it, really? I mean, from a personal perspective, it was a good day out. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it. We've obviously had an incredibly tough start to the season. And we're bitterly disappointed with how all the results really up until this point have gone for us. So it was really, really good to get that win. Um, I always enjoy going to Cardiff Arms Park. It's great hospitality. You know, Cardiff is a great club. We get a great welcome. And I think it's one that our travelling fans enjoy going to as well. You know, they certainly made themselves very vocal on the weekend, uh, which was great to see. And I, I was really happy that they got to see a victory on the weekend as well. You, you mentioned the sort of start to the season there, and it has been, you won't get many tougher starts really if you look at the fixture list. Obviously, it's a World Cup year as well, which doesn't help. And then you're straight to South Africa. You got an away trip to Dublin, obviously an away game at the Swansea.com Stadium against your nearest rivals. It has been tough, hasn't it? Just just in terms of what the fixtures have thrown your way. It has been tough in terms of the fixtures. You know, certainly starting off in South Africa like that was incredibly tough. Um, you know, then going to Leinster, you know, playing against a team that would, you know, put most international teams under quite a bit of pressure. I think that fixture at the Swansea.com Stadium was probably the most disappointing for us. So regardless of the run of fixtures, um, you know, we still feel that we could have done better and we should have done better. Obviously, the game against the Lions, you know, to not get that over the line was bitterly disappointing. And clearly, if you look at the table from a points perspective, um, you know, that, that's got consequences. So you could argue a difficult run of fixtures, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, but overall, you know, we're very disappointed, but it was good to get that win on the weekend. And, you know, now we've got to push on. Absolutely, and as, as, as Dwayne Peel said on on Saturday, I think it's it is quite a run of away fixtures, isn't it? I think is it four in a row. Um, you're sort of in the middle of. You must be chomping at the bit just to sort of get back to Parker Scarlets and just you know be be back at home in front of the yeah, home fans. I, 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 and I think in many ways, uh, you know, clearly the fixture list um, in many ways is quite challenging from a commercial perspective. It's quite challenging, also from the fans' perspective in just terms of getting into that cadence, that regular routine of coming to the park. And, you know, also you've really got to look at the fixture list to know where the games are, when they kick off, um, and when the different fixtures are either home or away. And that's that's a bit of a challenge. Uh, I, I think the, you know, I, I'm actually, um, you know, a fan of URC, particularly in terms of the inclusion more recently of the South African teams. I think ultimately that's, you know, very positive for the competition. But it is with its challenges in terms of the scheduling. And also, you know, we've seen pro- the problem exacerbated this year with the World Cup and with that extra fourth international seat, uh, fixture against the Barbarians causing a scheduling problems. There's a heck of a lot of international rugby to schedule around. So, you know, club rugby is really pinched in the middle there. And I think ultimately for the good of the game, um, you know, that that needs to be rectified. No, absolutely. Um, Steph, t- touching on the game uh, on the weekend. Um, I mean, there was there was a point early on when Cardiff were 14-0 up. You did sort of fear for the Scarlets, but it's to their immense credit that they got back into the game. Obviously, Ellis Jenkins' red card was a was a talking point, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get onto, but it, it wasn't necessarily a major turning point in the sense that it was it was a two-point game at that point. And by by and large, there was a lot of periods where the Scarlet's game management will have really pleased Dwayne Peel, I think, whenever Cardiff tended to come away with points. Scarlet's did very well to hit back. Um, what, what did you make of the performance, Steph? I think they showed a lot of character. Um you know, it would have been easy for their heads to drop after the Ospreys' defeat. Um, you know, Dwayne was was visibly upset in the in the press conference afterwards. Um, and then when they went forty nil down, you, you did fear that the same might happen again. But to be fair to them, they d- dug deep. And I think from a Scarlet's perspective, obviously there's still issues up front. You know, the set piece 
isn't probably where it needs to be if they're going to compete with with the better teams in the competition. But they did show that when they can get a foothold in the game, um, you know, when they can win some ball, that they can hurt teams because they got some really good, uh, talented individuals like Johnny McNichol, Steph Evans, uh, Johan Lloyd was outstanding. I think Gareth Davis is probably in the in the form of his career, even though he's thirty three and. I think that was a difference as well. Um, red card aside, I think that was the correct decision. Um, the Scarlet game management was their, the biggest difference, really. I thought Davis and Lloyd outplayed their opposite numbers and, um, you know, they, they managed the game well. And um, Lloyd especially, he, he seems to have learned, like, when to pull the trigger and when to play conservatively. And um, in, in the end, I think the Scarlet deserved to win the game. No, absolutely, and as we say, it's, it's, it was a massive sort of relief for Dwayne Peel after, you know, a, a West Wales derby defeat in the in the manner the week before. You know, it was a tough week. Um, it's, it's always funny the way these things happen. There was a fan forum organised before the Ospreys game the, the Tuesday after it, which, in fairness, he fronted up at, and it was a tough week for him, as he said on Saturday. But he, he sort of he stuck with it, and he got the rewards at the end of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, he, he's had a lot of. Um, uh, there's been a lot of criticism of Peel, I think, on on Twitter and on Facebook, and and in a way, the fact that there is criticism does show that people care about the club as well. Because if they weren't complaining, then you know you you'd be a bit more worried in, in certain ways. Some people obviously go over the top, and that, that's unacceptable. But uh, as a journalist, I, I you know I, I quite like Wayne Peel. He's obviously got a lot of integrity. There's there's no excuses, you know, when, when the Scarlets play pool, he's always very honest about, you know, that they weren't great and where they need to improve on. And, um, you know, you speak to people in the game and he's really sort of highly rated by people outside Bills as well. Obviously, as journalists, we, we speak to a lot of people outside of press conferences and, um, you know, he, he's been given an opportunity. It's, it's a tough, tough time for coaches in Wales because of the budget cuts and and, you know, all, all the politics that, that happened last season. But, you know, it, it's been tough for him. You know, the results haven't been great. And he has to take some responsibility for that. But I do think that he's part of the solution at the Scarlets. And I, I think, um, you know, it's not up to me, obviously. But I, I think um, I, I think he should be backed because I, I think he's a really good young coach. Indeed. Um, Simon Steph picked up on an interesting point there, which was, you know, you, you want the positive comments, you want the negative comments, you just want comments because you want people caring. I think, you know, it sometimes feel like apathy is maybe the biggest threat to the game in, in Welsh rugby. In terms of the position you're in, uh, you know, with all the, the challenges we're facing in Welsh rugby, how do you battle that? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'd pretty much agree with everything Steph said around or his assessment of the, the game on the weekend. Um, and that point about apathy or you know people caring, which is why they speak out, is is really really important. Um, you know, when when I first got involved in rugby, and my background is not sports, it's not rugby, it's it's business. I remember somebody telling me they said, "Okay, firstly, you've got to stop being a fan. Secondly, you can never forget about the fans." And um, I remember. Uh, somebody else telling me a story. It's a, a fam- very f- fairly famous now, I think, Frank Lampard story. Um, his uh, well, When he first played football for West Ham, his uh, mother worked in a bank. And uh, one of her customers, her son, I believe it was, is about 14 years old. Um, she asked Frank Lampard's mum if she could arrange for her son to meet Frank Lampard. So Frank said, yeah, no problem. And I'm paraphrasing the story. Um, but he he shows up at the bank to meet this kid. This kid is has been described as the biggest Frank Lampard fan on the planet. And he said, I saw the kid, and this is the guy who's calling me an FNC next Tuesday, nonstop, for 90 minutes, <laughs> every other Saturday. <laughs> and I'm not, by the way, condoning that type of behavior. Uh, but it is a bit of a vignette in terms of, you know, the passions that get stoked up in people uh, by sport. And um, I mean, certainly, you know, I saw one of our, let's call him super fans, uh, the week before last, uh, you know, uh, making it pretty clear what he thought about myself and the club. 
um, you know, after the final whistle on Saturday, making it again very clear what he thought about myself and the club. Remarkably, it was quite a 180 in, uh, you know, within in the space of six days. Um, and, it, you know, it, it is the thing that we need to tap into. I, I think on balance in Wales right now, it wouldn't surprise anyone if I said that I feel that the narrative is negative. And uh, that that's something that we need to fix. Um, you know, we need to find, you know, it's not spin, it's not uh, propaganda. You, you know, we do need to find the good things to talk about. Um, you know, and there are some good things out there and, you know, we, we need to do a better job of managing, you know, the game ourselves and, uh, you know, coming up with some good news to, you know, rise the general tide of sentiment around the game. Because, uh, you know, ultimately this game has been around for 150 years. It's going to be around for another 150 years if we look after it correctly and, you know, brings a lot of joy, happiness and, um, uh, you know, excitement and pride to, to all of us that participate in the game in some way, shape or form. No, indeed, because as you say, there is there is a sort of negative narrative at the minute, and it is hard to get away from that, you know, on the day to day. But maybe there's opportunities within that. You look at Cardiff. Um, obviously, I know he just beat them on the weekend, but it feels like Matt Sherratt has a clear philosophy in what he wants to do, which is for eighty minutes, those boys are going to go out and they're going to be bold and they're going to entertain whoever, yeah. whoever is at yeah. the Arms Park. Obviously, the way that you know the Scarlets have a a style of rugby sort of that it is entrenched with them. It's, it's how you sort of foster that, I guess, this new era of maybe these younger players aren't, are being thrown in at a time earlier than you'd like. But there's there's stories across the board there, aren't there, which you, you can sort of tap into. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, <clears throat> you know, a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, it was core to um, the success of, of any sports team, really. You know, Providence, where the club has come from and what it stands for is really, really important. You know, otherwise you do just have a generic sporting franchise. And, you know, I think rugby is a long way away from that from that world. Um, so I think having that clear sense of purpose, you know, what you stand for, um, you know, what you mean to each other, where people are from. You know, if you look at us, um, you know, down west in Tlaethley, you know, we represent three counties in the West that are sparsely populated. Um, that you know is the stronghold from a rugby perspective of the Welsh language. Uh, that represents agricultural Wales. You know, we've also got industrial or the edge of industrial Wales. Uh, you know, in the town of Lethe itself, uh, but you know, very gritty, down to earth. Um, you know, people of very few words. Uh, you know, but deep, strong passion. Um, and everyone, you know, needs to embrace the identity of who they are. Um, but, you know, and also, and I think we do a good job of this down West, um, you know, also, you know, welcoming in people from the outside. Uh, you know, we've got a sprinkling of Tongan talent. Uh, Steph referenced Johan Lloyd earlier. You know, he's obviously from outside of the region, Sam Costello as well, you know, and uh, and others. Um, but, you know, people who really buy into who we are as a club, where we've come from, and are looking to, you know, add as best they can to, you know, our our history as we, you know, continue to grow the club and, you know, try and, you know, build a, a further layer of foundation that can help it prosper for another 150 years into the future. When you talk about um, prospering in, in the future, I mean, obviously, the reality is at the moment uh, we you know, all our listeners know about the, the struggles in Welsh rugby with um, you know the the financial situation the the loan that's got to be paid back and the and the, the salary cap coming in um, a lot, lot of people a lot of fans are probably feeling a bit hopeless because of that um, what hope is there you know what what are the plans to get the professional rugby in Wales back on the right track. How would you sort of assess this this whole situation? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, we could be here for a couple of days. Uh, but, but if I sort of focus on a few things, one is the relationship between the union and the clubs needs to totally transform. Totally transform. And we have a hope of being able to do that now with the governance changes and with the, the wholesale change of leadership at the you have senior executive level and the board level of the union. Um, but we have to work on that really quickly. 
So that genuinely requires, um, you know, humility, no hubris, uh, transparency. I mean, I can throw cliches at it, but you know, it's no time for games now. You know, we've, we've got to get on with this, and we've got to get on with this quickly, because you know, you could argue that after, you know, certainly during COVID, you know, four, three, four years of extreme suppression economically of the regions, you know, by the union. If I'm, you know, very candid, you know, we then were able to break through from a leadership and a governance perspective, you know, but it's been another year of working through that. So on top of whatever happened, you know, in the previous 20 years of professionalism, um, you know, we've had a, we've now got a chronic uh, systemic hangover uh, from three years of COVID and a year of, you know, lack of day-to-day action. You know, due to structural changes, um, you know, being the focus. Uh, so we have to pick up on that. You know, we have a considerable amount of debt, you know, which is well understood by people. Um, we've got, um, I think, you know, challenges that pervade the game of rugby, um, you know, not just in Wales, but elsewhere. You know, three professional clubs at the top tier in England, you know, really four, if you include Jersey, that went bankrupt. You know, within the past 12 months, and that's within arguably the world's largest commercial rugby economy. Um, so we have to take that, you know, into consideration, you know, when we trash ourselves, because actually, you know, we have managed to survive when others have not. Uh, but that does not mean that we do not need to make significant change to go forward. So I think the relationship is one. On the salary cap, I'm not against a salary cap. Because I do think you need to run sustainable businesses in order for the game to prosper in the long term. There's no doubt, I don't think I've ever said any different, that the numbers are wrong. And that's not because I feel that we can spend more money, <clears throat> but the numbers currently forecast to come into the pro teams um, you know, can only support those numbers, and that needs to be fixed. And part of the reason why the pro game can only support those numbers is because of the hangover related to COVID. Um, you know, each region is paying well over a million pounds per year out the door debt uh, payment um, resurfacing arrangements. Uh, we've got <clears throat> economic headwinds. You know, we had COVID. Um, we've then had the Ukrainian situation. You know, we've now got the increase in interest rates. You know, it's one sucker punch after the other. Um, the TV deals are depressed, you know, because during COVID, um, you know, monies were not returned to the broadcasters. But ultimately, you know, you get your pound of flesh at some point, And we're feeling the pinch of that now. Um, our inflationary costs have skyrocketed. You know, we've got a big stadium, which is amazing. You know, that thing's really expensive to heat uh, and to keep ticking over. And then, you know, our staff, you know, we've had to give them pay increases. Um, getting temporary staff is is really really difficult. Uh, you know, people are making different lifestyle choices. You know, post COVID, uh, so we really are getting hammered from all angles. Um, and ultimately, you know, that's resulted in lower numbers in our squad. So then, when you get hit by injuries, um, you know that that puts you in a difficult position. You know, you can spin that positively, which is we're now giving youngsters the opportunity to. Um, to get more game time <clears throat> and long term we will see the benefit of that um but you know i'm struck by you know when we played down in south africa one of our first games of the season i'm sure you guys would have noted you know there was a um i believe he's welsh qualified number eight who made his debut for the bulls when they played against us um and one of the commentators remarked on what a successful debut that player was making he was making that debut as one new youngster starting for the first time within a very settled, mature team with a lot of cohesion. Um, Tane Plumtree played his first game for us in the league, I believe, as part of our team. And one of the commentators imagined you know, how good would his performance have been if he was playing in such a, a settled team with such a great deal of cohesion. So, you know, I love the stories where, you know, boys and girls in the future, you know, when we're able to host a women's team, um, you know, come from the region, you know, maybe come from lowly back. 
from families with strong connections with the clubs and, you know, go on to the pitch and, you know, do incredible things and, you know, compete at a, you know, on the global stage ultimately and represent the club. But you can't have a half a team doing that at the same time. You know, it has to be done in a deliberate, managed fashion because you've got to give those guys a chance, you know, to learn. I mean, I think, um, you know, Teddy Lederborough has done an incredible job this year, um, you know, of taking his chances. You know, that kid and others on the pitch, 12 months ago, were playing university rugby, admittedly at a high level, but it was still university rugby. So credit to them for the opportunities they've taken. That's a risky strategy. Um, and I'm not against it, but it needs to be done in moderation. It can't become the norm, uh, you know, for a team that's got aspirations to, you know, compete in the playoff season upon season. No, absolutely. I suppose it's probably a, an almost ex- extreme example, but, you know, you think back to that sort of that COVID game that Cardiff played against Toulouse and Harlequins and, and because of the, the nature of it, that was a feel good story. But if you're doing that week in, week out, then that the, the sort of the novelty quickly wears off, doesn't it? Yeah, and fair play to those guys. They did a great job of, you know, building a narrative and a story around that. I actually went with the Cardiff guys to the game at Quinn's and they did themselves proud. Um, but as you say, you know, that's not um, sustainable. There's also a bit of a duty of care issue there as well. I mean, we had, during the same window, we'd actually flown our Welsh players down to South Africa. Um, and we, I remember sitting in the park with a whiteboard and we we physically couldn't find 15 players to fill all 15 positions. Uh, and the names we were coming up with from within the region, from you know, some of the premiership teams uh, to play, it just wouldn't have been safe. You know, I think we had a game against Biarritz that we had to pull a plug on. Um, and it, it just wouldn't have been safe. So credit to Cardiff, but, um, you know, you can get away with it in those circumstances you know, on a one, two game basis, but it's not, it's not a product that you can build a fan base around. Is this, you know, the, sorry, you know, the four and a half million pound salary cap for next season, is that set in stone or is there, you know, is there a possibility that that could, that, you know, that the PRB could sort of lift, find a bit of money to, to lift that? Because four and a half million pounds is, is you know, that, that that's tough. That's tough to be competitive on, on that level of money. Um, I mean, it's certainly tough to be competitive at that level of money. Um, you have to remember that, it, you know, the, the cap has been set driven by the forecasted economics. Um, and, and the word cap is is almost misleading um, because it's more, this is what you can afford to spend rather than this is all we're allowing you to spend. Um, and that sounds like a semantic, but hopefully I'm getting my point across. Um, look, the reality is the PRB can decide to set it to whatever we want to set it to, assuming in aggregate we can afford it. Um, so miraculously, you know, if somebody was to drop, you know, ten million pounds into the pot. Um, you know, then theoretically we could hold a vote and, you know, we could all agree to to revise the cap. Um, and, you know, we'd be delighted to do so. And ultimately, you know, the the sequence of events is go find the money, then you can have a, you know, a broader conversation. So, um, you know, we are resolutely focused on trying to, you know, find some more money. And, you know, all we seem to do in Wales is talk about money. Um, you know, the reality is, you know, we need to be looking across multiple years, which is what we've done with this new framework. And I'm not against a lot of the structures that have been put in place. Um, you know, there are investor commitments from the regions. You know, there's effectively a fit and proper persons test that's been put on directors, you know, that are undertaking personal guarantees against the future of the clubs. Um, there are structures around minimum investment into academy and an, there's an academy license process. Um, there is a very structured approach to player contracting, a clearinghouse, uh, player contract registration process. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. And I think that will stand us in really good stead when we do find more money. Because the last thing we want to do is go find more money and then just, you know, we it at the door 
Um, you know, we've got, we've got to use it in a structured fashion, and that suits the players longer term as well as us. The one thing that I, um, you know, I constantly struggle with is, you know, people talk about the regions, and they talk about the players as two separate entities. You know, the, the regions are the players. You know, we are the people who kept paying them. They took a 25% pay cut, but we kept paying them through COVID. Um, you know, to the detriment of our longer-term businesses. Because, you know, the, the monies weren't there to keep paying them, even at the level that they'd agreed to take a pay cut to. Uh, and I really think, you know, we miss a trick in the public um, of not realizing that the regions and the players are, you know, a very strongly intertwined entity. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's something that we miss because, you know, if you came to any of our board meets, all we do is talk about players. You know, all we do is, you know, we talk about player welfare. You know, we talk about, you know, if a player is retiring, how can we look after them? You know, we talk about, you know, talent development. Uh, you know, we talk about investment we're going to make in young up and coming talent. We talk about our community programs. You know, we talk about our pathway. These are the things we talk about relentlessly. You know, there's not a single conversation around our board table about making money. There's conversations about trying to find money so we can do more good things with that. Um, but I, yeah, I think, you know, there's this perception of the regions sometimes, you know, as these evil entities that only talk about money. Ultimately, you know, we're providing employment, um, you know, for people. Um, I think, you know, within our net, you know, in some way, shape or form, we touch about 5,000 players on a regular basis across the course of a season. Um, you know, we do 500 community events a year. Is, is it frustrating then when, I guess, earlier in the, obviously early in the year when you had the strike action and then it is a very emotive situation where it does feel like lines are drawn in the sand and everyone's almost taken aside that maybe you don't have that sort of, how you see it as clarity in the public eye that the regions of the players, because I suppose that is when it really does come to a head or it certainly did, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so what I would say, I mean, I'm glad you asked the question, actually, because what I would say is I think the regions were very close to the players during the strike discussions. And that wasn't us fueling the fire. Um, you know, I to totally understood where they were, they were coming from. You know, we were desperate to go ahead and contract players. And indeed, the reason why... Um, you know, ultimately, the players had to take a vote, um, you know, but ultimately, one of the key factors in um, the strike not happening, and the strike would have bankrupted the entire rugby union, Welsh rugby union, um, was because the regions, um, on a personal risk basis, agreed to underwrite new player contracts. The associated guarantee of funding from the union was not there at the time in, uh, when the regions made um, that commitment to the players that we would begin issuing contracts. We took that on as personal directors um, to avoid that strike action and also to look after the players. Right, We, we knew they were at their breaking point. Um, it, you know, Ken Owens, who I was in, regular touch with i think you saw publicly you know what a, what a pivotal role he had in those conversations uh you know we were talking to them regularly and uh, you know i i knew what stress they were under um you know the, the pressures they were under and uh, it was just time to you know break the deadlock and you know we really pushed the union to um support us in that but ultimately it was the the clubs that uh, stepped up and made the personal commitments in order to um, you know, get through that uh, that blockade, so to speak. You know, we've you've seen recently as well. Obviously, we've seen Cardiff. Um, you know, they, they announced a couple of months back they signed heads of terms to bring some new money into the club. Hopefully, you know, hopefully that that gets completed. Um, you know, can we see anything like that at the Scarlet? Because obviously, you know, in order to 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 strengthen the squad moving forward, retain the players you want. And in the future, compete for silver again. It's money you need, isn't it? I don't know. It depends. I know. You know. Even if you have money, you've got to spend it wisely, of course. But there, there clearly is like 
a, a deficit in funding at at um, you know at all four regions really. Yeah, so uh, you know, I'm genuinely really happy for Cardiff. Um, uh, you know, and hopeful they'll finalise their deal any day now. Um, I've met their new investors. Um, uh, you know, they've been very gracious for their time, and uh, you know, they were there on the game on on Saturday. Um, so hopefully that didn't scupper the final stage of the process for them. Uh, and and that's nothing but good news for the rest of us. The, the key is, you know, no long-term investor is going to put money in to subsidize a club to mediocrity. Um, so, you know, the, the club, any club really needs to have a sustainable business plan with the right level of funding from its competition income streams, from its commercial revenues, and ultimately, uh, you know, from the respective union. Um, and then you've got an exciting proposition where you're encouraging somebody to invest in order to grow the club uh, and to achieve success. And that that's a much easier conversation than, you know, we need a bailout, we're underwater, we're still fighting the union, you know, could you give us a bridge? Um, so you know, we we need to get to that sustainable model, um, and and bring in external investment, and the you know, the club game needs to be sustainable and exciting, um, you know, in order to you know maximize the outcome from you know both of those sets of conversations. So you got to do both, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's probably worth reminding everyone that for. A, couple of years leading up to COVID, you know, clubs in Wales were break-even slash profitable. Um, I'm not very proud of this statistic, but the year before I took over at the Scarlets, the Scarlets you know, turned over about £15 million and generated £600,000 worth of profit. Um, you know, it was one of only two rugby clubs in Europe that year that um, generated a profit. So we can do it. You know, we do know how to run these businesses. Uh, but then, you know, for the year that I took over, the combined distribution across the four clubs was meant to be 27 million from the union, and it dropped to three. And that is, you know, that was the start of the, you know, the process that has left us with, you know, the world's biggest hangover. Yeah, you know, you, know, you, you talk about... Um... Sorry, I, th- I think I, I read the other day. Um, I can't remember the actual figures, but the 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 amount of money you're getting from um, you know the, the TV deals, I think, in URC and Europe is down. I mean, you know, you, you, there's all manner of debates around the URC and whether it's sustainable for for the Welsh teams. You know, I I do think that you know the South African teams have strengthened it, but obviously, you know, you know what Welsh fans are like. They and I understand where they're coming from. You know, they they would rather. You know, face the likes of Bath, Gloucester, Leicester, etc. It was reported in the Nationals that you know perhaps there could be some form of British, Irish, and South African league. Does that need to happen? Well, you know, presumably that would be more attractive to to potential investors as well. I would have thought. I mean, what's what's your general thoughts on the URC and and, and the merging maybe with PRL in in the future? Yeah, so uh, you and I have maybe talked about this in the past. So, you know, I've, I've lived in the States for a while. I'm quite a big fan of U.S. sports. And, you know, if you look at the NFL, which is the most lucrative team sport on the planet, it, it's still, you know, two, two leagues really underneath, um, you know, the NFL competition. So the NFC and the AFC. And I could foresee a world where that, that's ultimately where we end up in rugby. Um, I think Europe has lost its way. You know, I'm not talking out of school. I think, you know, EPCR would acknowledge that themselves. And that needs to be fixed. And I think Europe has got a pivotal role in bringing the leagues closer together. Um, There's no doubt from a commercial perspective and from a personal perspective, you know, I'd love to see Bath, Bristol, Gloucester, Harlequins, you know, play at the park. Uh, that would be fantastic. You know, I look enviously at Cardiff's fixtures for this season. Uh, no disrespect to our uh, competitors in, in Europe this season, but, you know, certainly from a brand recognition and, you know, from a tugging of the heartstrings perspective, um, you know, there's no doubt that those are the matchups that people want to see. 
Yeah, absolutely. And just just on a, a Scala specific um, uh, question, but obviously, as as we discussed at the start, there's a lot of a lot of criticism of Dwayne and the coaches. A lot of it is obviously misplaced because there's a lot of things outside of Dwayne's hands. But I mean, what's your thoughts on on that? You know, uh, you know, you've uh, the Scarlet board fully backing Dwayne Peel. I mean, obviously, much of the issue is a resource issue, isn't it? Because of what we spoke about earlier with the funding and stuff. But um, you know, people are obviously going to always blame the head coach if, if you're on a losing run. I mean. What, what, how does Scarlet's board see it? You know, is is Dwayne the, the man for the long run? What what's what's your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, look, it, you know, from our perspective, um, you know, we're very positive about Dwayne in the long term. Um, it, you know, big part of bringing Dwayne back into the club was to help us reconnect with with who we are. You know, bring that sense of identity, and also because you know we knew we had a project to you know rebuild the squad. We you know we had an aging squad, which has taken a couple of years to flush out, and to do a better job of integrating with our pathway and, and bringing youngsters through, um, and really taking a fresh approach. Um, you know, Dwayne is a uh, you know he's a phenomenal representative of the region. He's very passionate about the club. You know, he's got deep roots in the community. Um, so we also we also wanted somebody who you know would be prepared to stick around you know through through some tough times um you know so so it's it's you know we've got a mutual contract in terms of you know working through um you know the the redevelopment and um you know the uh, the building of the foundations for future success of the club but you know clearly we also want success today um and i you know in the the second half of last season, I mean, we had some great days at the park. Um, so it it has been disappointing how this season has started. Um, you know, but the season's not over yet. You know, we we do have some great fixtures coming up. Um, so now we've got to, uh, yeah, you know, do what we did in the second half of last season and, you know, really push on now and, um, you know, bring some smiles to people's faces. I mean, some of my... You know, we had three fixtures at the beginning of 2023 that really, you know, stick in my mind. So, you know, we had the Bulls, the Sharks and Clermont. Um, the Bulls game, I thought, was phenomenal. You know, it was really physical. Um, and, I, you know, I think we did a fantastic job of, um, of uh, putting that win off. Um, you know, then we played a Sharks team that kind of looked like the Springboks. And I remember talking to their players afterwards, uh, and it sounds like I'm name dropping, but you know, talking to Etzebeth and Khaleesi after the game, and they said, "Look, you know, congratulations, thank you. You know, we hope you don't take this the wrong way, but we came here expecting a bonus point win." Um, and then Clermont, I remember talking to uh, Gareth Davis, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, um, but I said, "You know, where does that rank?" And he said top three games at the park for me in my entire career with the Scarlets. You know, those were three great wins and the place was buzzing. Um, so, you know, we need to, you know, recreate some of that this season now. Yeah. So what, um, you know, I suppose, I suppose any Scarlet fan listening is going to want me to ask this, but moving forward, and obviously the focus on this season, but looking ahead to next season, um, you know, is there room to to strengthen the squad? I mean, will there be a lot of players leaving? Will there be, you know, obviously you're going to want to, to strengthen the squad, but will there, will there be the means to, you know, to, to, to strengthen where, where you're perhaps not, um, not strongest at the moment and specifically the pack? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no doubt, you know, that the forwards are an area of focus for us, you know, regardless of where we end up from a budget perspective. Um, you know, we've got some work to do to you know get the finances in better shape not just not just for us for all of Welsh rugby um for, for next season and we need to work really hard on that over the next couple of months if I'm generous really a couple of weeks because we need to get into contract season now um so there are you know clearly players we've got in our squad now that are youthful that we're optimistic about the the future 
this year. You know, we've got um, some players who, you know, logically, are, and I'm not talking at school, you know, are coming towards retirement. Um, so there, there will be some areas where, you know, we're going to need to recruit at a necessity. Um, and we'll do the best possible job we can. You know, what we've got to do as a club is we've got to make sure that pound for pound, we are the best rugby club we can possibly be. And if we do that and we then solve the money problem, you know, then we'll be in really good shape, right? But there's no excuse to not get maximum value out of every dollar you can spend. Um, and that, that, that's something that's really important as we, you know, try and drive the club forward. I mean, with, with the sort of finances, I saw an interesting uh, sort of Twitter exchange, which I think you were involved with uh, the other day. Um, I think it was someone claiming that the the Irish provinces almost spend the same amount as the Welsh regions. And there's often a lot of, I think, talk in, in Welsh rugby about, you know, why don't we copy the Irish model? But of course, it's not as simple as that. And I was just sort of interested to to hear from someone who is closely tied to it as to, as to, to why that isn't the case. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, again, a topic we could talk about for days. Um, but, but I mean, just to sort of depict that myth. Um, you know, even if we were getting paid the same amount of money this year, you know, during COVID, all the Irish salaries is paid for by the union. And each of the Irish clubs received 3 million euros per year in grant funding from the government. So they were, you know, kept on an even keel throughout that period. Um, You know, all of their incremental costs from a medical perspective, you know, at one point we were spending £6,000 a week on COVID testing at the park. Um, All of those costs were covered by the union. You know, in Wales, the union's downside was passed directly on to the clubs. So, you know, when you ship it out up to £2 million a year on interest debt repayments, well, capital and interest repayments, even if you get in the same amount of money coming in at the top, you're £2 million worse off. So, <clears throat> yeah, it, it doesn't stack up on so many levels, you know, that uh, that analysis. Um, so it was frustrating to see it out there. And, you know, sometimes you wonder what people's motivation is around that. I mean, if you look at the the last set of Scottish rugby accounts that were published, you know, £25 million worth of funding into two regions, into two clubs, you know, plus they get a lot of additional support from the union. Um, and that's for a country with a £75 million turnover. You know, the, the WRU turns over 100, 105 million. So if you just prorated that, you know, you'd be looking at closer to 40 million pounds going into the regions in Wales. So, uh, you know, we could go through these reference points, you know, for hours, uh, you know, but ultimately, you know, the union needs to decide. And, you know, this isn't an attack on the new leadership because, I mean, if I look at Abby, she hasn't even formally started, you know, within the union. Um, but ultimately the union's got to make a decision, which is, does it believe that the pro game has a significant place in terms of the development pathway for the success of the national team? I think a blind man on a galloping horse would say, yes, it does. Uh, you know, but ultimately that's the conclusion that, you know, needs to be reached incredibly quickly and then action needs to follow. You brought us nicely back round to the union because you said earlier that there needs to be a relationship between the regions and the union. Um, I mean, I guess the first part of the question is, it has been a turbulent time for the Welsh Rugby Union. We've all seen the report about the toxic culture. I mean, just just in terms of yourself reading that, what, what were your feelings seeing all this come out? And Yeah, I, I mean, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's terrible. Um, it, you know, and, and it, it, you know, if it one, one incident would have been awful... You know, this was clearly systemic. And it had been going on for quite some time. Um, it, it's good that it came out. You know, it's uh, unfortunate that it took so long. And, you know, that also, you know, the 
some people took quite a personal cost of bringing the news out into the public. Um, you know, it was also disappointing that, uh, you know, Steve's departure didn't follow immediately, you know, when that news came out and that, you know, such a significant severance payment needed to be made to him. You know, I, I can't really unpick that one. Um, but, you know, clearly we don't want to lose the opportunity, A, to fix that problem uh, and B, to push forward. Um, you know, for me personally, I thought one of the most impactful pieces of the task force report that came out was Amanda's resignation letter. And Amanda highlighted um, three key issues that needed to be tackled with. And I don't think any of us would disagree with them. So the first is the women's game. And, uh, you know, we all know that the women's game has a lot of promise for the future and is something that, you know, we need to be focused on. Um, you know, that needs to be done proportionately because you still need to invest in the men's game to generate more cash so that you can continue to invest in the women's game. You know, there's symbiosis between the two of them. Uh, the second point is um, the the governance and the leadership, you know, because that ultimately is the root of, you know, those issues that were uh, exposed earlier this year, largely in that BBC Panorama program. And then thirdly, and this has actually hasn't been talked about much in the press, although Steph, you know, credit to yourself, you you did unpick this one. Um, but the um, the relationship and the funding between the WRU and the regions, and again, ultimately, if you believe that the regions are a critical path of the pathway for national team success, bear in mind national team success. Know, drives a considerable amount of the economic income and also the um, it directly impacts the participation and the support of the game as a whole and its position as part of the Welsh psyche um, you know then you know that needs to be fixed and all three of these need to be addressed quickly you know, we need to make forward progress on all three incredibly quickly because clearly they've all been neglected, if not, you know, deliberately targeted in a negative fashion for a number of years now. But you know, you talk talk about like, um, obviously, there isn't an unlimited pool of money in Wales. I mean, we're we're not, you know we're not England, we're not France. You know. <sighs> This is always debated, right? And nobody wants this, but some people say a team needs to go, and it's not just a financial thing. You know, I, I personally, I'll go on record. I would argue that we haven't got enough professional quality players for four professional teams. Uh, I know a lot of people in rugby, not, not administrators, agree with that point. They wouldn't say it publicly, and also some people then think you need like a tiered funding system. Uh, and that you make more money from like latter stage participation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, you know, what, what is the, where do you stand on all this? What, what is the, the perfect model then? Because um, even if you have the money, even if you have more money, I mean, you, you still have to spend it and invest it wisely. You know, there still has to be a strategy. It's not all about how much money we can get. It's like, even if we got that money, how, how do we use it wisely and not just appear up the wall? Excuse me, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a couple of couple of things to respond to your question there. So, one is, I think, at all levels of the game, we need accountability. So, every dollar that the union hands over, you know, there needs to be some criteria around what that's going to be spent on and what the return is. You know, whether that's at the professional level, whether that's at the academy level, whether that's at the community level, you know, whether it's at the semi-pro level. Um, you know, there needs to be a contract in terms of, okay, what's going to be achieved for that investment? Because we only have a finite amount of cash. I do think we need controls. If I talk uh, now only about the professional game around what money gets spent on. And as I said earlier, I do think there's been a lot of good structures put in place as part of the new multi-year funding agreement. Um. You know, one of the things that's worth noting is, you know, when I first came into the Scarlets, 67% of my wage bill was actually set by the union. So as a privately held enterprise, you know, with directors with personal liability for the financial performance of the club, 
in exchange for the WRU funding, you know, they had the ability to set the wage bill. Uh, And, you know, so those types of things have now changed, but they still take some time to flush out of the system. Um, If you want to grow the national game, you know, I believe you need a a proportionate investment into the pro game to make sure that the talent is coming through so that the international team can compete successfully and can achieve success. So that does require you to spend more money on your professional game. You know, Scotland have done this. Ireland have done this. Um, you know, I it was interesting, you know, when I was out in Leinster, um, so it's a bit longer ago than I thought, but, you know, Leinster's ever biggest ever home defeat was inflicted by the Scarlets back in 2005. Dwayne Peel was man of the match, as he constantly reminds me. Um, and I can't remember the exact scoreline, but it was a 50-point drubbing at the RDS in front of about 1,500 people and a couple of dogs. You know, within a relatively short period of time, you know, they've grown to one of the top three club teams in the world. You know, played us, put 50 points on us in front of a crowd of 16,500 people. And then seven days later, you know, played Munster at the Aviva in front of 49,000. You know, that's a significant growth in a club and in the support of a game in a relatively short period of time. Um, and, you know, that's the way that we should be looking at these things. And you're right, Steph, it does require a strategy. Um, in my experience, businesses rarely fail from lack of strategy. You need to have a strategy, but execution is key. And there have been a lot of strategies produced in Welsh rugby. And, you know, please believe me when I say we need another one. We need another one quickly. Um, but businesses that constantly churn out strategies are ones who've got very poor execution capability. So you can have the best strategy in the world, but if you can't execute, it doesn't mean anything. You know, there is no tomorrow if you don't get through today. Right. So we've got to do both. Right. Because I think we have been beguiled in the past or maybe strategies have been produced as lip service. Um, But, you know, we have to have a good strategy in place and we've got to execute and we've got to do that together. Um, And we've got to have good people. We have to have humility and no hubris. And, you know, we've genuinely, you know, all got to be pulling in the same direction. I I guess that that sort of follows up from from Steph's question of that, that sort of that albatross of maybe cutting four down to three always tends to be part of the conversation. And maybe at times in the past, the relationship between the four regions hasn't always been the best it, it, because of, you know, these sort of threats to the day-to-day lives of each, the four of them. And where is the sort of the relationship now in terms of everything we've gone through in the last year? You know, we've now got a new sort of WIU board, which hopefully brings opportunity are the four regions all on the same page yeah i mean i think so the wru board is coming together as we speak so i can't really comment on you know the the relationship there other than you know my relationship with malcolm wall you know with richard collier which is in its infancy you know nigel walker you know those are good relationships um in terms of the four regions, so to answer your question about historically, you know, you've got, I was going to think of a gruesome example, but, you know, you've got, um, you know, four entities that are, you know, fighting for the food that only sustains three, you're going to have conflict. Because, uh, you know, everyone's going to fight their corner out of necessity. So that generates conflict. Now, I'd argue maybe for the union, that's been, you know, a deliberate policy in the past. So I think it's a two-step process. So one is figure out, okay, how much food is there, truly, genuinely? Let's be open and honest about this. What do we need from a strategy perspective? You know, Steph, your point about, you know, you don't believe there are enough players in Wales to sustain, you know, four regions. Um, That needs to be put to the test. Um, again, you know, part of that is, 
you know, what is the purpose of the regions? If the purpose of the region is largely to produce talent for Wales, then you might be right. You know, if the strategy for the regions is to compete, you know, and, uh, you know, with a healthy influx of foreign talent, you know, then maybe you're wrong because, you know, then you're enlarging the pool. So, you know, the calculations become a bit different. Um, so that, that question needs to be resolved. Then you're left with, you know, a, a mathematical question and a societal question too, you know, in terms of geographical coverage as to, okay, what is the answer? Um, so you need to look at it from a money perspective. You need to look at it from a societal perspective, you know, in terms of that geographical coverage. And you need to look at it from a performance perspective. And you need to determine what performance are you, you know, trying to achieve? Is it success of the Welsh team? Is it success of the regions? Is it, you know, having a good product on the field? Um, you know, you need to work through those things. But now is the time to work through that and come to a definitive answer? My, my personal opinion, and I'll give it, is... If you're a season ticket holder at any of the four regions, like I lose my like I, I got family members who are season ticket holders at the Scarlet. I've also got a best friend or a close friend who who's a season ticket holder at the Ospreys. And obviously they're proud, you know, when players from their local communities get developed by the Ospreys or Scarlet and go on to play for Wales, but <clears throat> they're not there to see their their main purpose for going for buying a season ticket or ticket full stop, isn't to see young Welsh talent develop, it's to see the Ospreys of the Scarlets compete against the best teams. For mine, uh, of mine, and I, I've actually, uh, perhaps I need to take this up with Nigel Walker, but it, it really annoys me. I saw I saw on TV some of the pundits before, um, I think it was a uh, Cardiff Stormers the other week, um, Sean Hawley says it as well, and it's like, Oh, you know, the, the, people think given young Welsh talent is uh, an opportunity is great. Yes, it is, but purely throwing a team full of nineteen to twenty-three year olds with no experience out to the RDS or playing at altitude in South Africa and they're getting battered—that is not development. You know, you said to yourself in one of your early questions. I think you were talking about Cameron Harnicum. The, the Welsh qualified bowlers number eight, hopefully Gatlin's on the phone to him. Um, you know, he was put into a very, very strong team. And when the likes of Jamie Roberts, he came through, you know, he partnered Casey Laulala, ex All Black, you know, Foxy was with Regan King, Tip Ricklin from Marty Haller, great All Black, Jerry Collins was there. And if, if if you're just putting kids out there, that's not developing players for Wales, that's just creating a, a, a losing culture. You, you you need to invest so that they're winning week in week out. They they're, they're playing in successful teams with an opportunity of winning with um and that level of Welsh player. I, I think the union need to understand that, and it's not gonna the, these pundits when they say oh Wales are going to be better in the long term, the region's short term pain for long term gain. It's not though. If the budgets keep going down. These players might get a bit better, and then they'll be off to England or France. You know, unless there's investment, the upper investment, then there's not going to be a long-term gain, is there? Because we want the regions to be winning silverware. It's not all about development for Team Wales. Yeah, and and look, you know, the numbers through our gates and our finances will tell you that your assessment of ultimately what people want to see is is spot on. Uh, you know, they want to come to the park in our case to, you know, watch watch a team win, you know, certainly watch a team compete. Um, and I, I do agree with you about the, the young talent. Uh, I mean, I, I personally do quite enjoy, you know, seeing boys from the region come up. Uh, but again, I'd rather see that, as I said earlier, you know, on, on, on a case-by-case basis as opposed to on a half-team basis. Um, but the the point you've made there is a very good one, which is, they will leave. You know, once once they become recognised, to achieve more success elsewhere. Um, so it's not a very long-term strategy uh, from a retention perspective. And you can't perpetually, you know, be a club that, you know, is, is blooding youngsters uh, because, you know, ultimately... In the long run, that's a thankless task. Indeed, um, I think we're probably hurtling towards the end of the uh, of the podcast. I guess 
one final question we have spoken about a hell of a lot uh, in the last hour um but i guess that the, the crux of it as you said it yourself is is that need to have a relationship with the wru moving forward I, I guess the final question is are you confident that that will be the case uh, i mean without you know being too personal i think you would look at the quality of what the board will be now as of you know first of december 2023 you know versus what it was 12 months ago and clearly there's been a step change in terms of quality um do i think it could go further yeah i, th- I think it probably could go further um but it, it is a big step forward you know my conversation so far with richard i've had brief conversation with abby you know they've been positive um you know i'm not too familiar with um, the other the non-executive members um, that have recently been added to the board, other than Andrew Williams, uh, you know, who I, who I do know reasonably well, and you know, he's a he's a top quality individual. Um, you know, we will find out over the next couple of months, uh, but but I am optimistic that that will be the case. Well, there we go. I think that's the the perfect place to leave it with a bit of with a bit of optimism uh, Simon it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast um, and Steph thank you as always if you have enjoyed the podcast do make sure to uh, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast it really does help us out and until the next one goodbye goodbye